Good morning to you. Have you ever gone to church only to come home feeling worse? Have you ever gone to church and left disgusted instead of uplifted? Have you ever gone to a church business meeting and left feel like you have taken a beating? What I'm asking is, have you ever come together as the people of God and only to leave feeling like it all came apart? I wish I could say that's never happened to me, but in 30 years as a Christian and 25 years of ministry, uh, there have been times when church felt more like misery than ministry, for it elicited interpersonal tragedy instead of a divine sense of majesty. Now, if that has never happened to you, well, praise God, (laughs) you have not missed out. But if it has happened to you, well, nothing new under the sun, is there? But there's lots of Christians that could have been there with you. Now, you see, in our text today, that sad story is the Corinthian story. Tragically, when they came together on the Lord's Day, they came apart. Because Satan had a field day. And so over the next two Sundays, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. And this Sunday, uh, we'll focus on the Lord's day and how we can get in the way of God's intent for that moment. And next Sunday, we will focus on the Lord's Supper and how it is a time to remember our Savior. So as you would turn with me in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 11. Now if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, please use our Blue Pew Bible and page 1218 should take you to 1 Corinthians 11. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn our hearts to the Lord of that Word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you today to speak. To speak from a passage that is very familiar, but that we look at almost exclusively through the lens of a a regular meal, a a time of remembrance. But there are other factors at play in this text that uh, you led me to warrant a a separate sermon because it is also true, and it is a true truth that we often don't think about. And I pray, Lord, that the implications and applications of this somewhat neglected truth would be supremely helpful, that we would come together instead of come apart, that we would keep the central central and the peripheral, peripheral. That we would understand your sovereign hand even when things are not going the way we would like in the land. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would encourage us and nourish us that we would leave a people more informed by the Word of God who then walk according to that Word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your fame. We're so glad you came. Amen. The Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, He took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are sick and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, well, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now this passage is famously pertaining to the Lord's Supper, and that's why it sounds so familiar. But it surprisingly begins and ends with a startlingly different message that most of us miss. And it's point one in our outlines today. If you turn in your bulletins, there'll be a section in the fold-out that you can follow along with what's on the screen. And so point one today is this. Our gatherings can lead to the Lord's commendation or the Lord's condemnation. That, that our gatherings as a church can lead to the Lord's commendation or to the Lord's condemnation. The Holy Spirit began this text in chapter 11 with a statement of commendation to the congregation in 1 Corinthians 11.2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Yet, 15 verses later, it's a different story altogether. Verse 17, But in the following constructions, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Verse 22, What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. We can assemble as a church and make things worse. Hmm. Now sometimes, saints, well, we sort of go through the motion on Sundays when it comes to church. Oh, it's Sunday again, and we load up the car, and we come. And, and, but what we do when we gather actually matters. We can't simply play church, but we should worship Jesus by being the church. If we don't, these meetings, they're going to do more harm than good. You see, in the first century, the Lord's people gathered on the Lord's day, 
and they shared in the Lord's Supper. But tragically, instead of bringing divine blessing, it brought divine chastening. And sadly for many today, this is not an aberration, it's an all too common situation. The Old Testament, we see this happening pretty much when the first people of God begin gathering. Uh, we're going to see this situation in the prophecy of two separate prophets, you see. I want you to turn with me in the Word of God to Amos chapter 5, verse 21. And uh, if your neighbor's lost, you can tell them that's page 975. But you know, you know where it is, right? Amos 5.21 on page 975. Amos 5.21, page 975. So, uh, give you a little context. Jumping from Corinthians to Amos, you're going from New Testament to Old Testament, and maybe you're not super familiar with the Old Testament prophets. That's all right. In, in Amos 5.21, we have God's perspective about His people's gathering around the year 760 B.C. That would roughly be when Amos was prophesying. And, and what was happening in the days of Amos is that His people were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts really weren't in it. They did all the ritual but none of the actual. Today we would say they were playing church, though they were not obviously the church. They were still the people of God in the Old Testament times. It was so bad, if you read the book of Amos, that you're going to see that, that these saints, these people of God, tore each other apart for a buck, and then they stuck that buck in the offering plate and thought everything was great. God said, no, it ain't. He didn't like what happened Monday through Saturday with what they put in the plate on Sunday. What, what's God's perspective, my friends, when we play at worship? Amos 5.21, in a very jarring fashion, offers the declaration of the God of heaven. And the Bible says, this is what God says about their gatherings. I hate, verse 21, I despise your feasts, the religious festivals God had set up. I hate them, I despise them, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream." You see, God wanted His people to treat each other all week with righteousness. Instead, God's people kind of went through the motions of religious ritual on the Sabbath while their hearts were basically, essentially, and committedly self-centered, self-serving, self-seeking. They were sinful. And God says, you know what? This situation in Amos is not new. It goes all the way back to the vast company of the redeemed. <laughs> Once you first have a people of God, so, you, so you've got God speaks to Abraham and he has a little tribe and, and, and by the end of Genesis it's just a very small family and then you have 400 years of slavery and that leads to a lot of population and you have a great nation, right? Israel shows up in the book of Exodus as a, a great people, right? Alright, so the first time you've got a great people, well, <laughs> I want you to look at verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
He's going back to the very first generation when they were a, a, became a, a fledgling nation. And he says, you did the same thing back then. You went through the motions. You were full of ritual, but none of the actual. And what God says is true in the days of Moses was true 700 years earlier in the days of Exodus when we first kind of have a congregation. I mean, this is a problem of the people of God from the very first time there's enough people to make a people of God. So what does God intend to do about it? Verse 26. You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Keon, your star god, and your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile into Damascus. So in the days of Amos, he says, I'm going to send you into Damascus as exiles. Says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Friends, our gatherings can lead to commendation or condemnation. God is not passive when we play church. Scripture is warning that God will not forever allow His holy name to be defamed in His own house. Eventually, He will step in with a hand of chastening until we begin listening and adjusting. Listening and adjusting. Because it's easy to be a hearer of the word and not be a doer of the word now you got the the days of amos we talked about that went all the way back to the days of exodus now i want you to go about 20 years later god's going to speak through the prophet isaiah about 20 years after amos because god's people still weren't heeding the warning just a generation after amos 20 years later turn with me in your blue pew bibles to page 791 791 will take you to isaiah 63 Isaiah 63 on page 791, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. Now, if you take a moment and you look through verses 7, 8, and 9, you're going to see that it recounts the steadfast love of the Lord, His great goodness to His people, His compassion and His gracious action. And yet, despite God's loving goodness, this is how God's people responded to their great and gracious God in His lavish love that was sent upon them. Verse 10, this is what they did. But they rebelled. And they grieved His Holy Spirit. They rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. So how did God respond? Well, the Word of God says, Therefore, He turned to be there... What's that word? Wow. Therefore, the Lord turned to be their enemy, and Himself He fought against them. He went to war with His own people until His people got over playing church. Friends, it's critically important that we heed the message of multiple scriptures across multiple generations. Amos, Isaiah, back to the days of the Exodus, and here in the New Testament in Corinth. Uh, We need to understand that our gatherings can either lead to the Lord's commendation, or they can lead to the Lord's condemnation. But we mustn't play church. Think of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. To some, the Lord Jesus gave commendation, and to others, He gave condemnation, and to a few, He gave a conglomeration. You're doing this right, and you need to fix this. But know this, when the Lord looked at His churches, the Lord always noticed what was happening in His churches. 
The Lord always warned when there was a problem in His churches, and in time the Lord always acted to make it right. So let's be a church whose gatherings result in worship. Worship that pleases the Lord. It's a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Let's be a church that, that engages in worship and not a church that engages in mischief. Because one is a pleasant aroma and the other brings chastening. Hmm. Now, if you're new to church, and some of you are, you're, you're, you're just figuring out this whole Christianity thing, you're new to, to coming to church, uh, you may be shocked by the fact that this is sometimes how the people of God act. I thought these people were redeemed. Don't be shocked. Okay? It's important that we understand that God's people are essentially a company of redeemed sinners. All right? <laughs> There's an old bumper sticker, and it's true. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. You don't have to be forgiven unless you sin, right? <laughs> so, so inherently, definitionally, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And so if we walk, you and I have to make a choice every day. Are we going to walk according to our old nature, the flesh, or, or are we going to walk according to our... New nature, that is, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And so if we walk according to our old nature, and let me tell you, that's going to come to us like second nature. That's going to be your first response when poked, right? Uh, our fellowship, if we respond like our old nature, which is our second nature, we will cause our fellowship to fracture. And sadly, our gatherings will do more harm than good, which brings us to our second point today. Point two, we ought not be surprised by divisions in the congregation, for we are merely redeemed sinners, but by God's grace we can do better. We ought not be surprised by divisions in the congregation, for we are merely redeemed sinners, but by God's grace we can do better. So for those of you shocked that there's stuff that isn't perfect, there's stuff that isn't perfect. And for those of you that think that that's good enough and let's keep it imperfect, well the verse has hope and we should do better. Do you, do you see? Uh, let your progress be visible to all. Christianity isn't perfection, but it should be progression as a congregation and certainly as an individual Christian. I want you to see where this is in our passage. Look at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 17. And you'll see it at the, beginning of eight, uh, the end of 18. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you... Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Meaning, yeah, I, I think that's probably a true report. He's not like, I can't believe there's a church somewhere that isn't just full of unity and harmony and ecstasy. He's not surprised at all because Paul goes to church every week. And he goes to a lot of churches, doesn't he? And so I believe it, in part, that there are divisions among you. Paul believed that God's people could do church in such a way so as to grieve the God we say we love. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.30 that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That Christians are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember the Old Testament spoke about those people and how that congregation, that company of the redeemed, how they grieved the Lord, how they grieved specifically the Spirit of the Lord. Here we hear the same thing. In Ephesians 4.30, the Bible tells all Christians everywhere not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever asked yourself, what's the context of that verse? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, 
The Bible says it's through bitterness, through unforgiveness harbored amongst us. Through permitting anger to so grip our hearts that we clamor to slander with our tongue. We're not getting what we want, so we advance our agenda in a submarine way, firing torpedoes at the ships along the way. Listen again to Ephesians 4.30, because it's going to give us clarity as to what grieves the Holy Spirit of the living God. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now here's how you do it. This is how you grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And instead, this is how you do the opposite of grieving. This is how you please the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what is the Holy Spirit saying? Well, the Holy Spirit who inspired that Holy Scripture is saying, people at church are going to sin against you. They're going to, and that's why it tells you to be forgiving of them. But we can be forgiving and begrudging. We can have sort of a sparing, hesitating, halting kind of forgiving. But he says instead that I want you to be tender-hearted. It's easy to get hard-hearted to the people that hurt us. Like, we will give time to the, to the lost person, and we'll give per- time to... We have infinite patience with our kids, right? But, but that jerk at church... No. <laughs> Who's always a jerk? He's been a jerk. He's not just a jerk to me. He's a jerk to everybody. It's hard to be tender-hearted. It's hard to be kind to one another. In fact, it's so hard I can't do it. I need Christ to do it in me. I need to be who I'm not. Because the the sinner in me is not going to do well at this. But Christ in me, I can do all things that glorify Christ through Christ in me. i got to choose, though. Am I going to do what's second nature? (laughs) When you poke the bear, do you get a bear that's a grizzly or a teddy bear? That's going to bring us to point three today, my friends. Point three. God's plan is for us to unite around Jesus. When we come to church, it's God's plan that we unite around Jesus in our coming together. Now, Satan's plan is for us to divide around preferences and come apart. God's plan is for us to unite around Jesus in our coming together. The church is ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly. Okay, so God's plan is for us to unite around Jesus in our coming together. Now, Satan has a plan. Satan's plan is to divide us about our preferences until we come apart. We see this again in verses 17 to 20. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part. For there must be factions. Now that's a verse I didn't expect. Among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 19 is a verse I did not expect. Don't let your ears miss the the power of that verse in just a moment. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Flipping down to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's part of being kind-hearted and tender and all that good stuff. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So what's going on? What's going on? Well, remember, the early church didn't have any buildings. There was no building like Calvary. You didn't drive to church, right? There were no buildings. Uh, Where did they meet? 
they met in people's homes, all right? Now, if you're going to have the whole church get together for the Lord's Supper, you're going to have to meet in the, well, the biggest home. And who in the world has the biggest home? Generally, the richest Christians, right? The richest people have the biggest homes. So where were they meeting when everybody gathered for the Lord's Supper? They might have met in several homes when, when they were having their regular, but when they got together for the Lord's Supper, they, 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 met, they had to meet in, well, the wealthiest dude's house because he's the only one that had a big enough house, right? Okay, so if most of the church at Corinth were to gather together, it would have to be in the home of one of the wealthier members or they simply all couldn't fit to do this. Now, how did a wealthy Corinthian homestead work? Well, here we go. All right, so, so there's some stuff happening that we're so removed by in 2,000 years, and we're not Romans, and we're not wealthy Romans, that we don't understand how can they be getting drunk and, and engorging themselves, and other people are humiliated and have nothing. We need to understand how their homes work. So, so this is a typical wealthy Roman home, all right? Uh, I'm not sure if this will show up very well. You seeing that at all? All right. So this is where they lived, all right? And, and there were things around here. We'll show you another diagram in a second. But with this one, what I want you to see is this is called the atrium, all right? And, and it's where you could put the most people, and there was an outer garden as well. And, and so people would be here, except for the important people. When you came to a Roman home, the, the important people were here in the triclinium. And I want you to notice that there is a three-sided special couch. Do you see any other couches? No, just that one. This is the only place you can sit down. These people had to stand. These people got fed because they were important and rich. This was the triclinium. Over here is everyone else who went to the atrium. And we're going to make sense of that in just a second. Let's go to our second slide and see if this is a little easier. And so again, this is another layout. And you see here's the triclinium. And what's it next to? It's next to an open atrium. And then over on this way, uh, you have the, uh, the colonnade garden. Uh, which has uh, a different Greek word. But, but basically, you see your two open areas that you can fit your overflow, and over here is the VIP box, the sky box, right? So where the rich people hang out, all right? The homeowner and his elite friends. Okay, so the Roman home was not designed to watch Netflix in the den with the kids all snuggled in. That's your home. That's not their home. Uh, the Roman home was a place of intentional architectural stratification to reinforce a differentiation in your social situation. So everybody knew what rooms they were allowed into based on how important they were in that world. And it was clear from, from who was permitted where, who was a master and who was a slave who was an honored guest and, and who was a tolerated lesser, uh, who was to be fawned over and who could be yawned over. You with me? Okay. And, and so the architecture was deliberately designed to reinforce your social status and to accentuate that one needed to differentiate between the high and mighty and the poor and lowly. And so wealthy guests were honored. They went to the triclinium. All right? And they were blessed to sit in those special seats, triclinium, because it was a three-sided couch. They had a seat. And why did they have a three-sided couch? Well, because in the middle was a table, and that table was filled to overflowing with the best the host could offer. Hospitality was a sign of, of importance and wealth, and it was great shame to the host if you didn't offer adequate uh, provision. And so those people in the VIP suite, they had all they could eat. That's right. But all the others, they had to stand. 
in the atrium or maybe even outside in that other open courtyard. And all those people in the atrium, they can see the dudes sitting in the triclinium, right? And, and while those in the triclinium were fed the finest foods and, and prolific uh, quantities of the host's best wines varieties, those in the atrium were only served whatever scraps and dregs were the unwanted cast-offs from the triclinium's table. Hmm. One group has gladsome freedom at the table, the others have very little. Now, while the Romans... Uh, celebrated and perpetuated this, this architecture of elitism, even they could see there were times that this got carried away, that there was something unseemly and uncharitable in, in the most egregious of these examples. So there's a famous Roman uh, official, his name is Pliny the Younger, and uh, he writes uh, about the, the, the situation where he even complains how... Uh, People can be mistreated in this situation. Overall, he's happy with the stratification, but he thinks it can be taken to an extreme. Uh, he says this, Pliny writes, quote, I happen to be dining with a man, though no particular friend of mine, whose elegant economy, that's what the stingy dude called it, elegant economy, as he called it, seemed to me a sort of stingy extravagance. The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few, and cheap scraps of food were set before the rest of the company. He had even put the wine into tiny little flasks, divided into three categories, not with the ideas of giving his guests an opportunity of choosing, but to make possible, impossible for them to refuse whatever they were handed. All right? uh, one lot was intended for himself and for us, because Plenty that was the governor, he's a big deal. And, and the other was for his lesser friends, and he notes, and all of his friends were graded. And the third was for his servants and freedmen. This loathsome, end quote, this loathsome pagan practice seems to have crept into the Corinthians' Lord's Supper observance. And it had obvious disastrous consequences, didn't it? This architecture with its over-deference to rank and privilege, socioeconomic status, is going to lead to a lot of problems in our passage. And it explains how some saints were able to pig out and get even inebriated while other brothers had nothing and were humiliated. Because probably you read that and you go, I don't understand how a little bit of wine, a little bit of crack, like that doesn't work in our church. How could you get drunk, you know? It's just not going to happen. Well, you're doing church here in a building we own. They did church there in building somebody else's home in a home. There was a way their culture did it. And that's what they were carrying into church, and it was leading to some problems. Do you remember that the early church had love feasts? So when we do communion, it's at the end. It's a little cracker uh, and a little, uh, a little bit of the fruit of the vine, right? How did they do it? They had a big meal, a love feast, an agape feast. And at a certain point, you would, the host would hold up bread and break it in remembrance of Christ and, and then would give some of the drink, and they would take that in remembrance of Christ. But it was in the context of a wider meal. So it would seem at Corinth what was happening was that the high and mighty, well, they arrived early, and they went to the triclinium because they didn't have other stuff to do. They were rich, so they could go and hang out with each other and network and do all that social stuff, right? And so the high and mighty, they would arrive early. They were seated with a priority. They were given a couch to sit at, and they grazed and drank freely and copiously, right? And while the elite gorged themselves in the triclinium, the working class had to come later when they could get off work. And then finally came the slaves. And remember, much of the early church was, 
was of the slave class. And the slaves could only come when all of their duties were finished and their master allowed them to leave. And so the slave came last and he probably came famished. And yet the food was already finished. Now do you see what's happening in our story? It resulted in this, verse 20, when they came together, it was not the Lord's Supper that they were eating. For in eating, each one goes with his own meal. And one goes hungry, another gets drunk, thereby despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. The Corinthians were going through the motions of church while they were importing the values of their pagan culture. Friends, as we gather on the Lord's day, we better be sure we do it the Lord's way. Uh, They were gathering on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper calls us to remember, to remember our Savior. As we gather to remember, what are we remembering? We're remembering that Jesus died. And we would do well to remember why Jesus died. The Bible says He died for our sin. So let's not indulge our sinful nature when we gather. He died to defeat sin. We gather and we engage in sin. Do you see a disconnect? Our interactions ought not be marked by by petty factions and personal preferences, but by the fruit of the Spirit. By love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, because against such things there is no law. For For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. That sounds a lot like poking the bear, doesn't it? Provoking one another, envying one another. You can poke someone to get a reaction. You can sit back and be a submarine and in your heart seethe. I can't believe that they did or got or were privileged to have and I didn't. Envying one another. Instead, here's what God wants you to do. You ready for it? Bless one another. What He wants you to do? Bless one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Love one another. As we gather together, remember why He died, we would also do well to remember how He died. He died willingly. He died meekly. He died in self-sacrificial agape love. For imperfect people who needed grace. And so in our gatherings, we too need to die to self that we might live for one another. That our Heavenly Father might be glorified and that we might be edified. Anything less than this is really unworthy of being called worship, isn't it? Which brings us to point four today. See how this is all working out well? Good. Point four is this. Point four. Our worship can be ritual or it can be actual and friend the Lord and sometimes even the Lord's people can tell the difference. You see, our worship can be ritual or it can be actual and and that is something uh, that the Lord always knows but often even the Lord's people can tell the difference. Have you ever gone to church And while everyone sat, sung, and shook hands, it really never felt like worship. The program might have been excellent at that church. Uh, The choreography slick, the the preacher polished, the worship leaders hit their mark uh, seemingly down to the very last second that they were supposed to. 
Sometimes the pressing logistics of multiple services means we have to be mindful of a clock so that everybody can get in. However, whether we're on the clock or not, it is very possible just to sort of clock in at church. And then we, well, we tune out after we've clocked in. But we're supposed to be worshiping Jesus. How? With all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength with all we have. Because he gave all he had. We're not careful. We can let our worship degenerate into mere ritual. And instead of being actual, well, the Lord, and often even the Lord's people, can tell the difference. Uh, Verses 20 through 22 make this quite clear. Paul's able to say, when you come together, it's not worship. It's just ritual. You're going through the rituals of the Lord's Supper, but it's not actual. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead of the other and has his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat in or to drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God? You can get together and actually despise the church of God in the house of God by behaving different than how God would have you. And in the process, you will really hurt your brothers and sisters, humiliating those who have nothing. So Paul says, well, what should I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? The church at Corinth really thought it had it all together. He says, no, I will not. The good news in all this is found in point five. Point five comes from verse 19. Point five is this. God can use even our sinful factions and our sinful actions to achieve his good purposes. God can use even our sinful factions and our sinful actions to achieve his good purposes. That's where verse 19 comes in, that verse that we don't think should be there. The Bible says in verse 17, but in the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now the Greek behind verse 19 is very interesting. It it reads, Dagar which roughly translates as, for it is necessary. A gar, meaning uh, for, and then it's uh, put in reverse order because of some grammar things you don't care about, but he's saying for it is required. For it is necessary. God has a purpose in this. It is necessary at times in the church of the living God for the outworking of sinner's flesh to be seen in a congregation. Why? Well, because when there are problems, when the flesh is evident, each of us is tested. We're tested to see whether we're going to side with our culture or with our master. Will we divide along tribal lines, be they socioeconomic or ethnic, or according to kinship and friendship, this person's my buddy, or this person's my family, this person's my group, this person's my ethnicity, this person's an old-timer, this person's a young person, this person's a lifer at Calvary, this person's a newcomer. Do you follow? Will we divide along tribal lines or will we side with Jesus? Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Now, we, if we're not siding with Jesus, we'll weaponize truth. And we'll become harsh and judgmental and we'll spit scripture like it's a weapon. 
And we can also prostitute grace as a church. Uh, uh, we can let some folks flagrantly hurt folks because we want to placate the bullies or at least soothe our allies. And we'll do that at the expense of other brothers who don't have those allies. Let me tell you something. Sometimes church hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes church hurts. Why? Well, there's a bunch of reasons why. The first reason is this. We're a mixed multitude. Jesus said so. There are goats mixed in with the sheep, and we won't see who's who until the king comes and separates the wheat from the tares, right? Okay. Number two, so, so there's some non-Christians. There are people who haven't yet come to faith, and there's some people that are pretenders instead of possessors. That's fine. There's also baby, baby believers in the church, and, and babies cry and bite and scream and throw toys. And if you've ever met certain Christians, you go, wow, that was what was happening there. Yes. There are also sturdy saints who are deep in the Lord and, and strong in the Lord, and they should know better, but they're just regime sinners, and sometimes if you poke the bear, you get the bear, and it isn't the cuddly teddy bear. Even though they know better, we don't always live better because we're still sinners this side of heaven. One day we won't be. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. You'll be glorified. Right now, you're you, and so will me. I'm going to try and be better than me because of Christ in me, and you try and be better than you. Because if we be each other, we'd be in trouble. The Bible says we're sheep. It's not a compliment. But did you know what? Sheep sometimes bite. Sheep sometimes butt heads. Sheep can rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes sheep will fling poo at me and you. You're a sheep. The Bible teaches this. So it shouldn't be surprising when situations are arising. You should look at those situations as opportunities, not problems. Friends, these are tests. And do you know what you're supposed to do with a test? Not avoid the test. Pass the test. Pass the test, my friend. Some folks think that church should be easy. And if it isn't, then let's leave it and let's go somewhere else. But let me tell you, that other place is full of redeemed sinners too. You just don't know it yet. Ignorance is bliss. Friends, according to an all-wise God who is more interested in our holiness than our convenience, who is more committed to our character than our comfort, that God says, there's going to be hard stuff among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. You're going to start to figure out who's a baby and who's sturdy. And you need to know that when you put people in leadership. You're going to figure out who's maybe a goat. And they're here and we love them and they need Jesus. And who's maybe a sheep. And those are really helpful things to know in church, aren't they? Hmm. You see, Genesis 50-20 is true. God is sovereign even over our sin. And that means what man intends for evil, God can use for good. Even in a congregation. But man intends for evil, God can use for good. God uses trials, the Bible says, to make us better Christians. Which is why it is no lie that we can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, even the church kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not only that, but we can rejoice in our sufferings, the Bible says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So friends, when you encounter 
turbulence in the journey. When there is discord, you think we can ill afford. When there is stagnation or even disruption within the congregation, I want you to remember that even in this situation, God can bring about our sanctification. So, in this you can greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, as it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Which brings us to our last point. Point six in all this. Let's remember, and indeed, let's make it our primary endeavor when we gather together. Let's remember, and let's make it our primary endeavor when we gather together. Point six. God is pleased when we self-sacrificially dwell together in harmony, seeking the good of our neighbor and the glory of our Savior. God is pleased when we self-sacrificially, agape, dwell together in harmony, seeking the good of our neighbor and the glory of our Savior. Our pointed passion, passage ends like this, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. We wait for one another. We look out for one another. We do not think more highly of ourselves, but we consider others. We speak and we act and we interact, and indeed we react not according to the provocation of the situation, but according to what our other brother needs, what's going to be useful for building them up. Do you see how that's completely different from how the world thinks? We do this because we want to be careful that our meetings do not do more harm than good. We do this so that we'd encourage one another daily because of the deceitfulness of sin. They're going to leave church and they're going to face the world and the world's not going to be encouraging them to be gracious and Christ-like. For God is pleased when we self-sacrificially dwell together in harmony, seeking the good of our neighbor to the glory of our Savior. And therefore, friends, I'm so thankful I'm able to preach this sermon this Sunday. I'm so thankful that in five years, every decision by our elder board has been reached in total unity. No division. Sometimes we've had to wait for the Lord to bring that unity, but we've always had unity. Every single decision in, for five years. Not many churches can say that. I'm so thankful that in these past five years, our time at Calvary has been so tranquil overall. Amen? I'm so thankful that we met our goal. We, we wanted to have business meetings that were worship services where we did family business. And we've met that goal. I'm deeply grateful that when folks visit Calvary Church, they routinely say how friendly Calvary is, and then they say, wait a minute, know how loving Calvary is. And they shall know us by our excellent marketing plan. Wrong answer. Hey, friends, there's a real enemy and he really wants to mess up this good thing. You and I get to hold the line. Will we follow Jesus, or will we react according to the flesh? So I'm going to encourage you that just a moment, we're going to turn to our neighbor, and we're going to pray to our Savior. 
I want to encourage you that the next five years, I want you to ask the Lord Jesus with the person next to you, that the next five years would be years of progress, not regress. I want to ask you to pray about some specific things. That over the next five years, that Calvary would be a place of worship, not mischief. That when we come together, it's never a time where we come apart. That our worship would be actual and not just ritual. That we would always and forever unite around Jesus instead of divide around preference. That God's people would be edified and God's Son would be magnified every single Sunday. That our gatherings would lead to the Lord's commendation. Not condemnation. I think that's a good thing to pray for. It is. Turn to your neighbor, pray to your Savior, and in a few moments, I will close this and we will begin our time of communion.